Hi, Maya. Hello. So you have been very interested in the notion of addiction, and this reflects your personal history, as well as all the research you've been putting into it. So maybe we could start with that personal involvement and maybe the sure. fact so, that, yeah, go ahead. Um, so I was a super geeky kid and I had a lot of difficulty connecting with people. And I eventually realized that I had a lot of obsessive kinds of interests um, at when I was little, these range from like opera and science fiction to TV production. Um, I was a weird kid. So when I got to be a teenager, I felt very isolated and lonely and really wanted to connect. And I discovered that drugs were an obsession that people actually wanted to hear me talk about obsessively. And so I became involved with drugs. I started um, actually smoking hash um, was the first thing I ever did. And then um, got into psychedelics for a while. And if I had stuck with that, I would have had a very different life. But eventually I wound up uh, addicted to cocaine and heroin and dropping out of school after, you know, sort of an entire life spent preparing to go to this Ivy League college. So it was extremely distressing. And when I got into recovery, I was like, what the heck happened? You know, I was this smart, weird kid. How did I end up shooting heroin? Um, and so, you know, so that's the very brief version. Yeah, yeah. So it feels very um, heartbreaking to hear that description of how starting as a smart but weird kid and how in a way there's kind of a chain of events and situations leading you there. Uh, yes. And that's very, very, very different from the traditional view of addiction as uh, people have some great defects. Well, and and I had already become, I had developed an enormous amount of self-hatred by the time I became addicted and the addiction did not help that. Um, it was the social, social isolation and probably incipient depression. And, and I really was just trying to find my way. And when I learned just how much people hate people with addiction and see us as a sea of character defects. Um, I really wanted to understand why this was. Um, I, you know, had a lot of self-hate, but I also saw lots of wonderful people with addiction. So I thought like, no, we're not all these antisocial selfish monsters. And what is the deal with this? Why do we see this problem in this way? And so I pretty much devoted my life to unpacking the myths about addiction and about who gets addicted and what addiction is um, and how to help people with addiction. Because um, I just, I discovered eventually that I am on the autism spectrum and that accounts for all the weird interests and the sort of oversensitivity that led me to get bullied a lot because I was very easy to pick on. Um, so all of these things, over time, I came to understand. And what goes on in drug policy and addiction treatment in the United States 
is completely based on myths and misunderstandings. Um, there's a lot of racism in it. It doesn't make any sense the way we deal with this problem because addiction is defined as compulsive drug use that occurs despite negative consequences. In other words, it's resistant to punishment. Um, but what do we use to deal with it? Punishment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yes, it, it's really... It, it 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 would be funny if it was not tragic um and and what you're talking about is really wanting to understand you know why is it that people hate us meaning hate people who use drugs have addiction uh, instead of trying to understand what's happening for them and i mean you know it's basically because this area has always been used as a political scapegoat so if you want to um you know lock up a lot of black people but you don't want to say you're a racist um you can just go after um substances that um uh everybody uses but just target it at uh black people um you know if you are a politician and you want to win an election being tough on drugs has historically been uh, a really good uh, way to win. Yeah. And these days, um, it seems to be beginning to change. Um, people have begun to realize that, you know, wait a minute, alcohol and tobacco are drugs. Like, why are we demonizing some other substances that aren't even as harmful? Um, and then you come back to the racism. <laughs> but the um, the... Drug policy has always not been about drugs, but about symbolic ways of going after uh, people, uh, minorities, um, immigrants. Um, the whole idea has been that you target this substance and you make these groups of people look bad and then you lock up lots of them and then it looks like um they're criminal because they're locked up and <laughs> it just creates this really vicious cycle. Um, of course, it doesn't stop the drugs. I mean, we can't even stop drugs from getting into jails. Like, how would we think we could stop, you know, substances being in the country? Like human beings have used substances of various sorts since before we evolved into humans. Um, you know, if you look at um, elephants will get drunk, cats have catnip, um, you know, there, um, there is consciousness alteration in other species and humans, there's no culture that doesn't have it. So, you know, trying, what we do is we're like, well, we'll go after this one because this is associated with them, not us. And, yeah. you know, it doesn't work because what happens in addiction is people are just seeking to feel okay and they end up trapped. So punishing people for having a condition that they can't escape from is really uh, not helpful. Yeah, so what we're talking about here is that there is a social construction of what drugs mean and a sleight of hand uh, so that you define the problem in a certain way, you hide the you know the the basic need that actually all animal you know mammals have also looked for substance mind altering substances uh and essentially it becomes an us versus them and where there is no interest in understanding what happens in addiction and in fact an interest in not understanding because 
by othering it, it helps the us versus them divide. Yeah. And I think also um, people sort of have this view that people who are addicted are kind of zombies and that they have zero free will and therefore they're not really quite human and we can do whatever we want to them. Um, in reality, addiction involves impairments in decision-making that are quite similar to what you see when someone falls in love. Their priorities just shift enormously. And just like people will do some pretty ridiculous things for love, people will do some pretty ridiculous things for addiction. Now, this is complicated by the fact that there are many pathways into addiction. Um, and, you know, some of them will involve people um, who have been violently abused and become violent themselves. Now, thankfully, vast majority of people who are abused do not become violent. But if you... Uh, if you look at the way, you know, it's just a heterogeneous population, basically. And mm -hmm. so trying to put one thing and say everybody with addiction is like selfish and violent and bad um, is just like saying all humans are selfish and violent and bad. Um, yeah. You know, certainly um, traumatized and mentally ill people are massively overrepresented among people with addiction because a lot of them are trying to self-medicate. Um, but that does not mean that you can say that everyone is the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a, that construct is that essentially we, we create that notion of what this addiction, addicted person is, and that addicted person is presumed to be outside of the continuum that's like to be human. So here they yeah. are, and here are us normal people. And, well, uh, and think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think part of that has to do with how um, if we see people with addiction as being completely out of control um, and we recognize that like, oh, wow, there are some situations where I don't feel in control that much either. Um, we can sort of project that. And I think like a lot of the uh prejudice and stigma we have against um, obesity is similar. Like we're terrified that like that could be us. And so we project all kinds of things onto people um, who are the way they are for no reason. You know, it's not their fault. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but we just don't want to look at the fact of that because that means we could be vulnerable too. Yeah. Yeah. And of course the, exact opposite of that approach would be, yeah, I can be out of control too. And therefore I'm going to have empathy with the person who's in addiction. And, you know, it's a totally different approach from splitting it. You know, I'm yes. part of the people who have control and they don't. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, you know, there's sort of obviously many different psychological defenses that go into both how um, people become addicted and how we see addicted people. And it's really important to examine those and to recognize that, you know, there's many, many paths into addiction. There's many, many paths out of addiction. And if we actually want to help our loved ones who are addicted or ourselves, if we are addicted, um, we have to understand what those paths are and get different approaches to different people. Because if we just keep doing this one size fits all, um, it's just not going to work very well, as we can see.
Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about really being pragmatic uh, instead of blinded by that preconceived notion of what addiction is. Yeah. And I mean, there's just sort of been this idea that, you know, people with addiction are these like heedless hedonists who are very, very selfish. And like, you know, they just put their pleasure in front of everything else. In reality, what sets you up for addiction is like not having enough pleasurable and rewarding experiences. It's not like you're looking for like extra happiness or are extra selfish. It's more that you are distressed and you are seeking ways to manage that distress. And so, you know, it looks like you are behaving incredibly selfishly when from within you're like, this is what I need to survive. I'm just trying to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so from that place, uh, looking at it from the place of the potential helper is a difficult one because, hey, this is somebody who is in a lot of pain and has tremendous difficulty coping with life. And in some ways, you know, who am I to think that I have the solutions? And so that fear of the gulf and and how can I really help? And so it's really difficult to stay with something that is the potential of how difficult it is to live as a human being. Yes. And that, um, you know, people want to go away from that and they tend to want to just, you just need to straighten up. We just need to do tough love. We just need to crack down. You know, you need to get over yourself um, rather than trying to meet people where they are and figure out, you know, yeah, what is driving this? Like why, you know, the vast majority of people like are not behaving this way. Um, what is it that is making this world so difficult for you personally? And how can we find better ways that are healthier of achieving coping and pleasure? Yeah, yeah. And so that's the difficult place, meeting people where they are, because it leads, say, me as the healer or aspiring healer to question it, but also to accept that what the addicted person might need is something that feels scary, like helping them continue, like the clean needles, uh, uh, as opposed to telling them to stop. So uh, there's a risk involved there. Uh, well, and I, think, I think there's a general misunderstanding of harm reduction efforts like clean needles or the overdose reversing drug naloxone um, or um, over prevention sites where people can um, take drugs under supervision. There's this idea that it's enabling or encouraging and that you should just be sitting there telling them to stop. Well, everybody's sitting there telling them to stop. They haven't stopped. Um, you know, yeah. that's not working very well, right? So why don't we find out why they're doing what they're doing and try to help them figure out healthier ways of achieving that. And we all know from like, if you try to go on a diet or start an exercise plan, or you just try to do something that you want to start doing, but that requires like a big change, you don't change overnight. You don't like go from zero to 60 instantly. Like you sort of take a few tentative steps forward and then maybe some back because you're scared. So if you treat people with compassion and empathy and respect, they will begin to treat themselves that way. 
And that's what's so hard to see because it like it looks like, oh, you're just giving this needle so they can go kill themselves. No, you're giving the clean needle so that they don't get HIV and they don't get other bloodborne diseases. And they realize that somebody cares about them exactly as they are, not how they could be. We want obviously for people to get better and to do less unhealthy um, activities. But um, when people with addiction are in the midst of, you know, active chaotic addiction, they are so stigmatized and everybody's always telling them, well, I'll give you this if you do that. And, you know, people cross the street to avoid you. It's like, you were just not seen as human. And when somebody says, hey, I care, I'm actually, you know, back in the day and still in some states, like you were risking arrest if you were like giving out clean needles. Um, you, not the, the carer, not the um, per, not just the person with addiction. So, but when somebody sees that like somebody cares enough to risk that for somebody that like everybody else hates, you start to think, wait a minute, hmm, what's going on here? Um, and when you're so used to being treated as like the object of derision or, um, you know, just seen as awful, if somebody treats you with dignity and respect, that's kind of surprising. And mm -hmm. it begins to make you think, well, what's up with that person? And maybe I could like, maybe there's some hope. And it's really about instilling hope and about caring. And, you know, it's, it's beautiful, I think, in that way, because when you can just be there with somebody and not be like, you must do this for me to like care for you. Um, that's like what we want in relationships. We don't want them to be transactional. We want to um, be seen. Yeah. And the more, you know, it's like if you're asking somebody to give up the only thing that they think makes life bearable, you're going to have to give them something else to make life bearable. And one of the key things for that is just love and support and social connection. Um, and this is why a lot of people recover through various social things like 12-step programs, um, like non-12-step programs, like just, you know, joining some club, becoming a musician, um, whatever, like there's many, many different things that people find to make meaning and connection in their lives. Um, and the more opportunities people have to make those connections, the um, more likely they are to recover. It's not like, you know, I mean, people had this idea that like, oh, you know, you give somebody their drugs and you're just going to keep them enslaved. Well, if you look at um, the heroin treatment programs in Europe and Canada, what you find is that you're giving people free heroin. This is kind of the ultimate in enabling, right? Mm -hmm. um, in fact, they are as likely to move towards more traditional forms of recovery as you, they are if you don't give them the free heroin. So in other words, you're not keeping them trapped in addiction longer or anything like that. You're keeping them alive. Um, some of them are going to be able to move forward quite quickly. Um, others may the heroin, they're good with that and they stabilize their lives and they can, um, you know, that can be a path to recovery for them. Um, yeah. So it is, you know, it's just really important to see that we have this whole thing backwards and that we've been thinking that 
the way to help um, people with addiction is just sort of impose power on them, make them feel powerless and crush them. And then, um, you know, you make them feel so bad that maybe they'll stop. Well, if you're using because you feel bad in the first place, this is a pretty misguided way of getting you to stop. Right, 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 right. So that sense of and and what you're talking about is that what the data, what what the facts show pragmatically is that actually a harm reduction approach certainly does not create uh, a path to furthering the addiction. But what you're talking about, uh, uh, which is very profound, is the idea that actually it changes the world uh, that in the world of addiction, you're isolated and uh, you're unwanted and you are other and you are bad. And this is something where actually there is somebody meeting you where you are uh, and taking a risk. I mean, even if it's not a personal risk of jail or something like that, but the risk at least of confronting the fear of having yes. a lot of stuff that we have that are out of control. Uh, and so making a connection as a human being to another human being and bring welcoming back addicted people to the, to the human race. And that, I mean, that's really, you know, that's what it's about. It's like recognizing that, you know, we're, we're all human. People with addiction have this method of coping that has gone wrong for them. Um, how can we make this better? And when you do that, you really do see amazing things. Um, people, you know, people live up to or down to your expectations of them. If you expect somebody to be a full human, they will be, you know, um, mm -hmm. if you treat them the other way, they will either leave um, or, um, you know, not benefit from the relationship at the very minimum. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Maya. So this seems like a good place to end. Just want to check if there's something else you might want to add. No, I think I think that that's good. Thank you. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.